Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, Pastor Kurt Shelton is currently in a series on the life of King David. And on today's podcast, we're going to be looking at David and his mighty men from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 17. If you're looking for a church home and you live in Northwest Arkansas, we would love to connect with you. You can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. You can also reach out through phone. Just dial us at 479-442-4634. We'd love that opportunity to meet and worship together and answer any questions that you might have. Now again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing with us from the life of David as he looks at David's mighty men from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 17. Let's listen together. Our text is 2 Samuel chapter 23. I know that may seem strange to you. <clears throat> 2 Samuel, because we have been in 1 Samuel and we've not uh, yet seen David ascend to the throne of Israel. Um, but I want us to go to this chapter uh, that begins with actually the last words of David at the end of his life. Uh, we'll not read those words. We'll save those for another day. Uh, but there is something I do want us to read about. And interestingly enough, um, God inspired this in Samuel's recording of the life of David uh, towards the end of his life. Now, we've been studying about uh, David, a man after God's own heart. We have uh, seen that that's who he is through Faith and through failure, we're going to see uh, both of those as we continue this study. But specifically in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about David's time that is spent in the wilderness before he comes to the throne. Uh, David uh, had his own wilderness training. God used uh, somewhere between 13 and 15 years of David's life as a fugitive, running, hiding, fleeing for his life. And during all of this time, God's preparing him to reign on the throne of Israel. Not only is he preparing him through hardship, but also we find that during this time, God is giving him songs in the night. Many of the psalms that we read uh, were psalms that were inspired by the Lord, the words given to David by the Lord while he was in the wilderness. We began our service today uh, with a psalm, Psalm 63, uh, that was recorded as David was hiding in the wilderness, fleeing at that time, not from Saul, but from his own son, Absalom. So it's important that we not overlook these wilderness years. It appears at first glance that they are years of fear, of flight, and of frustration. But even in the spite of all of that, they are very formative to David's life. We need to take that lesson and remember that our difficulties, our hardships, our heartbreaks, 
These are not wasted experiences. They are very carefully measured out to you and me because there are lessons, life lessons, eternal lessons that can only be learned through difficulties. These things shape who we see God as being and our place in his work just as David did. During these wilderness years, these, this defining time in his life, David, uh, these years shaped David's theology, his understanding of God. They molded David's character, who he was, what kind of person he was. And they birthed in David a life of worship and a life of praise. And our hardships will do the same for you and me. But these wilderness years did something else. During this time, God was providing for David an army. David did not reign by himself, though he was the sole person that would sit on the throne of Israel for some 40 years of his reign. Understand, he had behind him, he had with him an army. And it was an army that did not start off in a very promising way. While he was in the wilderness, at its, at its height, it would number some 600. Much of the time, it numbered only 400. And out of that, there were a special group of men that we're going to talk about today. Now, concerning how his reign started, we read about that. You don't have to turn. Let me just read a couple of verses from 1 Samuel chapter 22, what it says about his first recruits into his army. Listen, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Agilom. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul, that word literally means discontented, discontented. All of these, those in distress, those in debt, and those who were discontent, they gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. You've heard me refer to these men as David's army of 'er ne'er-do-wells. These are not the people that you would pick if you were a man after God's own heart. These were men that you could honestly say were not necessarily, and probably not hardly at all, men after God's own heart. They were in distress. They were in debt. They were discontents. These people were 'er ne'er-do-wells at best. They were crooks and criminals at the worst. But that's what he had. Now, we could, we could take this lesson today and make it completely a lesson on leadership because you need to keep this in mind. Here are these 400 ne'er-do-wells, these discontents, these people that are in debt, these crooks, these criminals, these who were hiding from the law of the day. And David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, whipped them into an army. Now just imagine that. The beginning of 2 Samuel 23, where we're going to find our text, David refers to himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. 
And so you had this group of men in this cave that smelled like the Kansas City Chiefs locker room after the Super Bowl, and he is whipping these guys into shape. That is leadership. That is some kind of ability to lead men. That the sweet songwriter of Israel is the one to boss these guys around and make them his faithful army. David was indeed a great leader. But we're not going to talk about leadership today. I want us to fast forward from the cave some 40 to 45 years later. David is on his deathbed. And here is where the Spirit of the Lord inspired us to learn about, in more detail, these mighty men, or at least some of them. Now, we read about his mighty men in 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and also here in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachimanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 men whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoha. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Verse 11. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? 
Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's just the feats, some of the feats of the top three, the primary captains of these mighty men of Israel. We know that there are more. In fact, this chapter goes on to list some 37 names. The Bible several times refers to David's 30 mighty men of Israel. That's not a conflict. It appears that these mighty men was a fluid number of group. Uh, there were about 30 at any given time, but some went and some came uh, according to battle. Some died in battle. For instance, the last name listed uh, in this chapter of David's mighty men was a fellow by the name of Uriah. Have you heard that name before? Uriah the Hittite. They were not all Israelites. Some came from pagan backgrounds. But these are those who came to David, and he had these 30 mighty men. You can read a little bit about those men uh, in a brief paragraph or two in your worship guide. It has been said, here's a key truth as a foundation truth today. We'll just state it and then move on. It's been said that leadership is influence. That leadership is influence. If so, then the greatest expression of good leadership is seen in the lives of the leader's followers. Not necessarily always the leader, but look at the people who follow him. And in these mighty men, we have some interesting stories. You read about the feats. We just read about the feats of three of these men, numbers one, two, and three. There are feats of others listed. For instance, there's a man by the name of Benaiah. I'll mention him only because uh, Justin would be completely disappointed if I didn't. And Benaiah was a great warrior, but it, it notes about him a little later in this chapter that Benaiah went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. I love that. Why does God tell us that? It's just a good story. There's not a lot of lessons to learn from that, but notice the detail. It was a snowy day that he jumped into that pit where there was a wild lion, and he slew him. Another case, we find that one of these mighty men killed an Egyptian. That Egyptian was a handsome man, the Scripture says. But the mighty man went and took his spear away from him and killed him. Well, let's focus on these three that are named in our text. And I'm going to give you a different name for this first guy. I'm not going to try to say Josheb Bashabes any more than I've already said it. He was also known as Jashobim. Jashobim. These three unnamed men in verse 16 and 17 are probably another story about the three, Jashobim, Eleazar, and Shema that were already mentioned. Well, what do we know about David's mighty men? Let me just give you a few facts, and I'll get back to these three men. They were 30 in number. We already referred to that. They are named in two places in Scripture. We've already talked about that. There were 37 named here, but it appears that at any given time, it was usually 30 men. 
And not only that, but it appears that these fighting force, these men were organized in groups or in squads, okay? And these elite of the elite, Jashobim, Eleazar, and Shammah, were some of those who led those squads of mighty men. Now, let me say this about Old Testament stories. We have to be careful how we interpret them. Our tendency sometimes is to try to make them all have some kind of secret meaning. We try to read ideas into their stories. And I want to try to be very careful not to do that today. But I want to tell you what I think these guys, or at least what they remind me of, truths they remind me of. We don't need to read into these stories whatever the simplest meaning of an Old Testament story is, is what it is, okay? The simplest meaning is always the most accurate meaning. Something else we have to watch out for is what we might call presentism. Presentism, meaning taking the present and projecting it back into the story. For instance, certain sensitivities, certain ideas we have today, or philosophies we have today. To try to take these and interpret Old Testament stories in spite of our ideas today also will lead us to wrong meanings. For instance, we have an incredible sensitivity today about racism, do we not? I mean, everything and everybody is a racist if you listen to what people say. And because this congregation right here is primarily, meaning numerically, numerically a very light-skinned color, we are especially racist in the eyes of many in the world, and especially in our country, okay? Everything is racism today. But don't take that sensitivity and project it backwards. If that's the case, David would have never let Uriah, a pagan Hittite, be a part of his mighty men, as well as others. So don't be guilty of presentism. Don't don't be guilty of trying to take our ideas and make somebody 3,000 years ago be guilty of it, okay? We have a lot of um, dangers in interpreting Old Testament stories. So with those cautions in mind, let's look at these three men. Number one, Jashobim. What is he known for? Well, verse 8 tells us he was the chief of the three. In other words, of David's mighty men, of his 30 mighty men, Jashobim was number one. He was number one. And what do we know about him? It says here that he wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And I know what you're thinking. That's just really hard to believe. It is, isn't it? Well, if you go over to 1 Chronicles, you'll find that it doesn't say he killed 800. It says that he killed 300. Okay, well, that's a lot more believable, right? 800 in Samuel, 300 
in Chronicles. Does that mean the Bible is in conflict with itself? No. That is probably, it is probably a, a copyist, a scribe's error. In the Hebrew language, to write 300 and to write 800 begins exactly the same way. It could be a copyist error. It could be talking about two different things, two different battles. Whatever it is, understand this, Jashobim was a stud. We know that. We know that. Do you think less of him if he only killed 300 instead of 800? I don't. He was a stud. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that he was a stud. That's what we learn. That, that's what it tells us. He was a bad dude, okay? He was the leader of all of these mighty men, these mighty warriors. But let me tell you something that that story reminds me of. I'm not saying this is what God's trying to teach us. I'm saying there's a New Testament principle that that story causes me to think of. And it is this. I believe that that story for me says that with God on your side, you are never outnumbered. With God on your side. Or maybe I should put it this way. When you are on God's side, you're never outnumbered. What does the Bible say in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32? Do you remember? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, you finish it. Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he goes on to explain this. He, God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us, all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My friend, you plus God is always a majority. And you need to be concerned about pleasing one person, and that is God. Not your teacher at school. Well, let me take that back. You, you might ought to please her, some, or him. Especially if they're your parents, right? Especially if they're your parents. But you really only have one person to please that counts eternally, and it's God. It doesn't matter what the other people at work think about you. It doesn't matter what the other people at school think about you. It doesn't matter if you've been voted the most popular or the most beautiful or the best dancer or you're a star on the football team or the basketball team or the track team. If you're the number one salesperson in your office, it doesn't matter all of those things. All of those awards... All of your trophies are just going to be trash at the end of your life. And I want to suggest to you that they'll probably become trash before you get to the end of your life. The only thing that counts is if God is on your side. If God is pleased with you. And with God in your corner, that means you are a majority always. 
Do you remember when the Old Testament prophet Elisha was having to to flee for his life also. He was going through his own wilderness experience. Why? Because Syria was doing battle with the Israelites. And every time Syria made a battle plan, every time they laid a trap for the Israelites, God would come, an angel would come, and tell Elisha, what was going to happen, and Elisha warned the Israelite commander, and so they always had the upper hand. And so one day, the uh, Syrian commander was with his was with his uh, his army, his generals, and, and they were making plans. And he said, "Why is it that Israel always knows what we're going to do? Who among you is a traitor?" And one man knew the answer. He said, "Sir." There's no traitor here in this tent. But God is telling Elisha, the prophet, everything we talk about. God is warning them. And so they said, okay, we need to get Elisha. We get Elisha, we'll whip the Israelite army. And so Elisha and his servant was in a village, and it's where they were, happened to be living at that time, a place called Dothan. And the Bible records a humorous incident. The servant, Gehazi, gets up early in the morning to make coffee. It doesn't say he's going to do that. We know that's what he was going to do. But before he made coffee, he stepped outside of the house where they were staying, and he was rubbing the sleep from his eyes, and he looked up to the hillsides and saw they were completely surrounded by the Syrian army. There was no escape. And Gehazi goes in and shakes the man of God awake and says, Elisha, Elisha, we're surrounded. We're doomed. What can we do? Elisha walks out and takes a look around him, and he prays a simple prayer. He said, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he may see what's really going on out there. His spiritual eyes that he might see what's going on in the spirit world. And suddenly Gehazi's eyes were opened. And yes, he saw they were still surrounded by the Syrian army. But guess who had the Syrian army surrounded? It was the army of the Lord. The Lord of hosts. And this Syrian army was struck with blindness. And the man of God and his servant walked out right through their midst. And once again escape. Listen, when God is on your side, there are things going on in the spirit world that you cannot see, but that you can count on. I'm not saying you'll have an experience just exactly like that, but I am saying, listen, no matter what the odds, if your goal in life is to please God, God's going to take care of you like he did Jashobim. Number two, Eleazar. Eleazar, verse 9 and 10. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Understand the scene and what's happening. The Israelites are getting ready to do battle once again with their perpetual enemies, the Philistines, the ones that they did not drive out of the land as God had told them to. So now they had continuous battles with. And the Israelite army retreated 
And Eleazar was left there by himself because he was not the retreating kind. So he took off fighting the enemy by himself with his sword in hand. And he fought so hard. And he clung so tightly to that sword. And the battle lasted so long that day that when it was over and the Philistines were all dead or retreating, understood his hand was stuck to his sword. He couldn't turn it loose. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe not with a sword. I hope not with a sword. But have you ever worked all day with something you were not used to using, some kind of tool, a hammer, a hoe, some kind of power tool, until your hand freezes up to the point that you can't let go of the tool? You haven't had to trim your hedges all winter long, but come April or so, you'll need to, and you'll go out that first Saturday, and you'll work with that trimmer for so long, all day, several hours, and you're going to get to the end of the day, and you find out, my hand's frozen up. I can't let it go. That's what happened to Eleazar. He was hanging on to his sword. What does that make me think of? It makes me think of this. You can't fight a good fight without your sword. And what is our sword today? It's the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and acting, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. That means it's sufficient and it's adequate for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Dear friends, this is the only weapon you have as a child of God. That's so true, I'm going to say it again. This book, this Bible, is the only weapon you have to serve God for spiritual warfare. It's not your wits. It's not your wisdom. It's not your leadership skill or your parenting skills. It's not your smarts. It's not your education. It's not any of those things. Your only weapon is the Word of God. And you need to cling to it so tightly. You need to hang on to it so tenaciously. You need to read it and study it so faithfully that it becomes a part of you, that, that it's not how tightly you hang on to the Word, but it is to the point that the Word is hanging on to you. That even if you try to lay it down, it's like Eleazar and his sword, that you hang on to the Word because the Word is your weapon. Even Jesus... Even Jesus, when he was in the wilderness being tried and tested right after his baptism, and the devil comes to him face to face three different times and seeks to tempt him, 
or to lead him astray through the pride of life, through the pride and the lust of the eyes and, and the very same temptations that worked on Eve that works on you and me. The very same temptations that John warns us about in 1 John chapter 2. He comes to Jesus with the very same tried and true efforts. And what does Jesus do? Does he just banish him into hell for eternity? No, he could have. Did he just wipe him out? There'd be no memory of him ever? No, he still is alive and well today. Jesus did not use his godly creative power against the devil. What did he do? He quoted scripture to him. The scripture says, the scripture says, the word says. Now, I want to tell you something. If this is good enough for Jesus to use against the enemy, it is more than sufficient for you to use. But you know what? To use it, you got to know it. You got to know it. Why can I say here and stand before you and say, Unless you are on your deathbed. Well, I'll take that back. Unless you are really bad sick. Or maybe every once in a while other extenuating circumstances. You should never miss a worship service. Why do I say that? Because I just want you to be here to feed my ego as I look at you. Listen. My ego doesn't need feeding. It's big enough already. <laughs> no, no. I actually don't have much of an ego anymore. I'm so whipped down. I just do whatever my wife tells me to do. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Not for my ego. But because I know that's what the Bible wants, God wants for you. You know why I can stand here and say without a doubt every single one of you ought to be in Sunday school every Sunday? You know why I can say that? Because I know that you're going to hear the Word of God in Sunday school. And you know what? You need to hear the Word of God. You know why I can stand here and say you ought to come to Wednesday night Bible study instead of sitting at home watching TV? You know why I can say that? Because you need to hear the Word of God. You're kind of like the old clothesline. Those of you old enough, you know what the clothesline was, right? Where you'd hang the wash out to dry. But what did Grandma always do? She always had to prop up the middle of that, that line with a stick. And that's what Wednesday night is. It's to keep you from sagging between Sundays. Boy, that's good, isn't it? I just made that up. <laughs> that is really good. You leaders, if you're a leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you ought to be here on Wednesday nights because you need to be taught as much as we need you to teach. And guess what? You might say, well, I don't really need that. I don't really need, you know, to be faith, a member of faithful men or faithful women. and I don't really need all that. I'm, I'm doing pretty good in my spiritual. You know what? It's not always about you and what you need. 
It's about the fact that others need to see you. They need you to be a blessing to them and to be an encouragement to them. It's not always about what am I going to get out of it. It's about I have a chance here to encourage somebody else and to be among my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I can recommend all of those things. You know why? Because I know that the center of all of them is the Word of God. And you can't get too much of the Word. You need it. You need to hang on to it so tight that were you to try to shake it loose from your hand that you could not do it. That's what this reminds me of. That's what Shema, or excuse me, Eleazar, reminds me of. To hang on to the Word of God so much so that I can learn to use it skillfully. That I cannot let it go. That the Word becomes an extension of who I am in Christ. Number three, Shema. The Philistines gathered together, verse 11 and 12, at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Again, the children of Israel... The Israelites retreat from the Philistines. But Shema took his stand in the middle of a patch of lentils. Isn't that interesting that the Bible tells us that? He could have told us that story without saying that. Now, I don't know about lentils. I kind of read that. It's a pea patch is what that is. But I think of it as pinto beans. By the way, do you know what is the pinto bean capital of the world? It's Dove Creek, Colorado. I've been there. You should go sometime. He took his stand in the middle of a plot of pinto beans. That makes it more personal to me. Why there? And why does the Bible tell us that? I don't know. Maybe it was because Shema loved lentils. Maybe it was because it was his pea patch. I don't know why it tells us that. But I do know this. I do know this. And what it makes me think of is this. That there's some things worth fighting for. There's some ground you should never surrender. There needs to be some place in your life that you say enough is enough to the enemy. I've given up too much ground. I've retreated too many times. And I'm not talking about just your personal little issues and pride. I'm talking about real things that matter ground that the enemy doesn't deserve, that you dig in your heels and you say, this is where I stand. I can do no other, even as Martin Luther did. What is that for you? 
Where is that for you? Is there anything in your life worth dying for? God, I hope it's not just your job or just your games or just your hobbies or just your possessions. I hope there's something deeper in your life that's worth fighting for that causes you to mark off the ground around you and say, this spot of ground I will not give to the enemy. And can I say this to you? I believe it's a key truth. If you don't have anything worth dying for, my friend, you don't have anything worth living for. If you don't have anything worth dying for, you don't have anything worth living for. For Daniel, he had his own pea patch that he wasn't going to surrender to the king or anybody else. To Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they marked off some turf that belonged to God and they were going to defend it with their lives. They were thrown into a fiery furnace. But guess what? They found out that if you've got God on your side, you're never outnumbered. And Jesus walked around in that fiery furnace with them. Daniel was not alone in the lion's den. God was there with him. For Esther, she had a place in life that she was not going to surrender to the enemy. For the apostles, they were willing to be drawn and quartered. They were willing to give their lives for a gospel they believed in. For all the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, they were willing to mark off their pea patch and die for it. It's called faith. It's called convictions. It's called predetermined decisions that this ground belongs to God and I'll surrender it not to the devil, not to anybody. What is that for you? Shema knew what it was for him. Let me very hurriedly. I've taken too much of your time, but I'm having too much time telling this story to you. Thank you, Dwayne. These three unnamed fellows in verses 13 through 17, I think are the same three men. They're just not named again. David is getting almost to the point of despair. He is in the cave of Agilom. He's discouraged. He's thinking of home. He's thinking of Bethlehem. And he just, just speaks out loud the way you and I can be prone to do. And he said longingly, longingly, oh, that I could have, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. There's no water that tastes like the water from back home. Now, I never said that because I live with my grandparents in Mountain View, Arkansas, and we had a well, and it was iron water. It turned the toilets orange. That's how iron-filled it was. I couldn't stomach that stuff. But evidently, this well at Bethlehem was one that David 
found sweeter than water anywhere else. And these men were so loyal to David. They loved him so much that they said, let's go get him some. And one of them said, wait a minute, the Philistines are there. They've got a whole garrison around that town. What will we do? They're all looking for David to show up, and they're going to capture him if he does. They said, we can handle the Philistines. Oh, Jashabim said, I'll kill 800 at one time if I need to. So they went in and they slipped in. They killed a few Philistines. They got to that well. They filled up their water jugs. So proud, so excited. Can't wait to get back to the cave of Agilom. Looky, I can't wait to give this water to David. And what did David do? He was so surprised. He was so shocked. He took this water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And he said, I can't drink this. And the Bible said he poured it out. To the Lord. Say, so what's the meaning of that? I'll tell you what it makes me think of. That there's some things that come at such a great price that the only thing that is right is to offer it up as a sacrifice to the Lord. In fact, that's what he did. The Bible said he, he poured it out to the Lord. These men were willing to give their lives to give their commander, their future king, a drink of water. David said because of that, because of their sacrifice, though they survived it, for their sacrifice, I can't drink this. I need to sacrifice this to the Lord. What did Jesus do for you in order that you could drink of the water of life? There is some water that's more precious than even the well at Bethlehem. Jesus said, I am the water of life. He that drinks of this water, he told the Samaritan woman, will never thirst again. Will never long for any other water. Jesus gave his all. He gave his blood. He was completely scorned he was tortured. He had the cat of nine tails laid to his back that left the flesh and the muscle hanging like ribbons. An expert Roman soldier with a cat of nine tails would not only shred the person's back, but would whip it in such a way that those bits of bone and metal on the end of those leather straps would wrap around the body and rip open the abdomen. And then he was taken to a hillside, a place of death, a place of crucifixion. And he was stripped 
naked and hung on a tree. He did that for you. He came to this earth, made his way through the enemy to get to that place to offer you the water of life. Don't pour it out. Drink deeply of it. But recognize this, that that sacrifice on his part is worthy of a total sacrifice on your part. It's not just a matter of accepting Jesus, praying some simple little sinner's prayer, and walking away unchanged. You have to sacrifice yourself. Not that you work for your salvation, but it is repentance and faith that leads to eternal life. And upon drinking of the water of life, Paul then says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. These three men sacrificed themselves to please their king. What have you done to please your king? Hmm? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? If you're saved, the Spirit is in you. You have him from God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. The price is the sacrifice of Christ. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then loses his soul? Well, these men were the cream of the crop, David's mighty men. I thought it was important that we recognize who they were and some of their exploits because everything else we'll read about David, these are the men who were behind him and upholding him and serving him and many times offering their lives over and over again for him. Jashelby reminds us that one plus God is always a majority. 
Eleazar reminds us to cling so tightly to the Word of God, our sword, so much that you can't let it go and that it won't let you go. Shema reminds us that there are some non-negotiables in life, ground that should never be surrendered. If you don't have something worth dying for, you don't have anything worth living for. Add these men together, they remind us that some gifts in life, some blessings in life, come at such a sacrifice that they encourage us to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. That's the gift of eternal life in Jesus, our Savior. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. Thank you for their stories. Father, they were sinful men, hardened men. They didn't always talk well. They didn't always live like they should. But they were courageous. They were men who had a king. Father, we oftentimes don't talk the way we should, don't act the way that we should. In many ways, we are those who are in debt, in discontented. So many ways, Father, we are imperfect. But I pray that we have a king and that we have a king that we will sacrifice everything for. May we live for him today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.